Can any of you unmute? I can't hear anything. Okay, can you hear us now? Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, this topic of emptiness, which Buddha pretty succinctly summarized as this is because that is. This is not because that is not. This idea that all things, who we are, what we are, when we are, is because of numberless causes of conditions that have come together to allow us to be here. And I'd like to give a brief overview of some of these causes and conditions from the universe that had to happen for us to be able to sit here and talk. Because some of them are pretty spectacular and incredible. And I have then kind of related to how it influences my practice and I hope can influence yours a little bit. I'm gonna give a brief overview of 13.8 billion years of cosmic history <laughs> as we only have, so I'll try and cover it in about 10 minutes. So I'm gonna necessarily abbreviate a little bit and abridge some things. The first thing I'd like to introduce is this thing in physics that we call energy. I imagine you've heard at some point, energy is neither created nor destroyed, it only changes form. The further I've gone in my academic education, the less and less satisfying I find definitions to be. You know, you can get more and more fancy and more and more technical, but really just what, what is it? You know, just what is this thing that we call energy? I've never been given a satisfying, real, really satisfying definition. So I'll just leave it at, it's a property of our universe. It's just something that's here. There are lots of types. There's kinetic energy, it's the energy of motion. There's potential energy like gravity, radiation, light, thermal energy. We can categorize it endlessly. It's really ultimately all the same stuff. And there's one particular form of energy that I think is particularly interesting, and it's what we call mass or matter, us, all the particles in our body that make up everything around us. Matter is just another form of this thing called energy. A professor of mine liked to used to say that uh, matter is just frozen energy. Just cool it down enough and it turns into matter. So this is us. When we talk about life force or something like that in Buddhist practice, in my head, I kind of click in with this thing, energy that's all around us, constantly changing. So with that kind of in mind, I want to take you back 13.8 billion years to the primordial universe, to a very special event that we call the Big Bang. Not really a bang, really, but at this time, the universe was very, very small, smaller than a subatomic particle. It was very hot and very dense. It was tiny. And we don't really know what came before this, why this happened in the first place, why it exists at all. I imagine we'll probably never really know. But for some odd reason, this tiny little speck decided to start to expand. And then a bunch 
things started to happen because of that. So I'm just going to highlight a couple. The first one is this event, an event that we call inflation. It's where the universe expanded about a trillion, trillion, trillion times in size in one ten millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. Just and this event was very important because the energy that makes up all of us, everything around us right now, was released during this period of inflation, this brief period. And shortly after that, about a hundredth of a second after this initial event, particles started to form. Protons, neutrons, what make us up? And they're a very special thing, and we can actually recreate this environment with particle colliders on Earth. But there's a very special thing that happened during this period, which is in, which we call the matter-antimatter anisotropy. Usually, you take energy and you make particles. You have a matter particle and you have an antimatter particle, and they're, they have opposite properties of one another. The universe loves balance, and for some reason, for every 10 billion antimatter antimatter particles that came into existence, there were 10 billion and one <laughs> matter particles. So that 10 billion came together, turned back into energy and vanished. But for every one in a billion, there's an extra matter particle. That's all of us now. If that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here talking. After that, the next big event happened about 10 seconds to about 20 minutes after the formation of the universe. This is what we call Big Bang nucleosynthesis. So in all the hydrogen and helium, a little bit of lithium, present in our universe came into existence. So if you just look around and if you see hydrogen anywhere, it was created in the first minutes after the Big Bang. I'm gonna do a bit of a time skip because we need to start moving. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna fast forward 380,000 years, which is, a long time for us, but it's really just a blink of an eye in the, in the span of the universe. And during this time, the universe was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it was cooling down. So it was really just a soup of hot particles and light just bouncing all around. And eventually, it cooled down enough that electrons and protons came together and formed atomic hydrogen. And before this happened, it was opaque. It was like looking through a cloud. You really couldn't see anything. But as it cooled down and all these things came together, suddenly the first light of the universe just scattered, just reached out and spread out to fill up the universe. And we can actually look at this light. Every cubic centimeter of space around us, there's 400 little particles of this light from the early universe 380,000 years ago. They haven't interacted with anything since then. I have a picture of it right here. <laughs> This is what we call the cosmic microwave background. And it's the, what our universe looked like 380,000 years after its creation. The colors on here correspond to very slight differences in temperature, about one in 100,000. So if you had $1,000, this would be like changing by a penny. So it's really, they're very, very small. And where these came from is in that early universe before inflation happened, there's this, these things that we call quantum mechanical fluctuations that are just changing endlessly. And those fluctuations got spread out with inflation to be much bigger 
than we normally associate with quantum mechanics. And these temperature variations in this early universe correspond to density changes. And from those slight little density changes, the first galaxies were able to coalesce. Without those little variations, galaxies would have never formed. They're really proto-galaxies, so they're just big clouds, hydrogen and helium. This is about 100 to 250 million years after the Big Bang. We're going to take successively bigger jumps. So after these galaxies formed, shortly after that, the first stars came into being. These stars were quite large. They're about 100 times to 1,000 times larger than our own sun by mass. And kind of counterintuitively, the more massive a star, the shorter its lifetime. So whereas our sun lives for 11 billion years, these things only live for about 3 million years. So make that a little more human. In a 100-year lifespan of a sun, these stars live for less than a month. They're very, very short. And they're massive, and so there's rapid turnover. And if we look around, we'll see we have this thing called the periodic table. And it has a lot more in it than hydrogen and helium and lithium. And these, all these other elements above those initial three that came about during Big Bang are from stars in one way or another. Whether that's stellar fusion, going through nuclear fusion in their core, or going from supernova, which is when a, star, a massive star explodes, and in less than a second, it will release more energy then the sun will release in its entire 11 billion life, lifespan, 11 billion year lifespan. It was some of the most extreme events in the universe. Some elements also came from mergers of things called neutron stars. If you take the mass of a sun, squeeze it down to about six miles, you get something so dense that protons and electrons can't even exist apart from one another, they come together and form neutrons. A single teaspoon of these objects is over 200 million tons. These objects collide and they have gone undergo a series of nuclear reactions and they create metals. And these metals are spread out throughout the universe. If anyone's wearing a gold wedding band or anything like that, almost all the gold in the universe was made in the, colli the collisions of neutron stars with one another. There's this whole periodic table, all that all came about because of stars. And so in a very real, direct sense, stars are our ancestors. They, if they didn't come into existence, we wouldn't be here talking either. I'm gonna take our biggest jump yet of nine billion years, where we have many generations of stars, galaxy mergers, supermassive black holes forming, super clusters of galaxies, and lots of evolution and dynamics going on in the universe. Whereas until about four billion years ago, in a regular looking galaxy in an unassuming little neighborhood, a star began to form. And out of the leftover disk of material that from its formation, little clumps of that material started to come together, become little rocks we call planets. And the third of those furthest, the third closest to the sun, just happened to be in the right zone, but wasn't too close, not too far, just right, where there could be liquid water on its surface. And so that planet started to develop an atmosphere and then oceans. And somewhere in there, little chemical reactions turned into the first 
organisms or life. Then we have 4 billion years of evolution, change in atmospheric and planetary and solar conditions, mass extinction events, ice ages, and a lot of stuff I don't know anything about. Um, till we get to the development of agriculture, civilizations, generations after generations of humans. It's estimated that 100 billion humans have lived so far. Until we get about 2,500 years ago, when a very particular human decided to sit down in India beneath a tree in the quest to understand and end human suffering. And then 2,500 years of these teachings being transmitted from person to person, and many, many other causes and conditions, we're here today talking about them. For a while, you know, I've known a lot of this for a long time, at least the astronomy, and I really, I struggled with it, because it just, you know, what? The universe is so massive and complex and we're so small and insignificant. It seemed like all my academic classes were just teaching us how insignificant we are. It's just this huge thing. And it often felt kind of meaningless. I would, you know, slip into a, almost like a form of nihilism where it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's dukkha. It's, you know, what's the, what the heck is, what is all this? You know, why are we in this tiny little speck of dust in this huge universe? And it really, it, it bugged me. For a long time. And that was one of the first things that kind of brought me in to Buddhist practice. And through Buddhist practice and kind of studying and learning the teachings and, and practicing them, the question of, you know, so what do we do with all this? What's our place in the universe? I think in one pretty fundamental sense, we don't really have to do anything. We don't have anything that we need to attain. We're already part of this massive, wonderful, mysterious universe, living out a reality of interbeing and impermanence. Whether or not we're really aware of these things, this is kind of how I understand Buddha nature, that everything has Buddha nature and is doing these things. But at least personally, I love to create that separation in my mind of big universe out over here and this tiny little speck here. And it is very big, it's very large. It, I can't, I could tell you numbers, but it, they're really meaningless. It's just incomprehensibly big. Um, but it's not just something out over there apart from us. It's right here manifesting in front of us. In, in previous services and stuff, the Alan Watts's kind of description of this big tree, that's the universe, the big tree, and then on with many, many, many branches. And on one of those little branches, there's an apple. And the apple isn't apart from the tree. The apple is the tree appling. And so I kind of think of, you know, the universe isn't something over there, Right here, we are the universe human being. To kind of put it another way, in terms of the uh, one of my favorite sutras, the Diamond Sutra, we start with A equals A. You are you. But we look a little more closely, and we can see you aren't 
actually necessarily you. The, you are, you know, who you are because of where you grew up, your parents, when you grew up, your friends, all your interactions you've had, all these other events going on in the world that are seemingly un, un, irrelevant to our daily life, but inevitably affect our daily lives. You are the Big Bang going, happening, the first generation of stars, the first galaxies. You are 13.8 billion years, causes and conditions coming together to be here today. So A is not really equal to A, where form is emptiness. But it is precisely because all these conditions coming together that we can be here today. So A is equal to A. Emptiness is form. So A equals A. A is not equal to A. Therefore, A equals A. Mathematician's worst nightmare. <laughs> so really, this... This emptiness is just kind of, you know, we're this, this endlessly changing thing that we call energy moving from one form to another constantly. If you think of the ocean, that's the energy, that's the universe. And then there's the waves in the ocean. That's us. The waves didn't come from nothing, and the waves don't return to nothing. They just endlessly change. We're all part of the water. So this is when I hear the word universe self, naturally, I jump to all the universe, just all the, all the things I know about the universe. And so these numberless causes and conditions that have brought us here today and, and led to us talking about these teachings. So while we don't necessarily have to really do anything fundamentally or attain anything, it's very easy to forget these things. We often don't act in accordance with this kind of universe self. And we live in a society that rewards not acting that way and encourages it and in the, in the, is very preoccupied with the worldly dharmas, pleasure and pain, fame and obscurity, praise and blame, gain and loss. They're all out there and they kind of give us tunnel vision. Just bring it in so we can't see this big universe self. And really, they make us focus on the small self. And we take, try and out of this big universe self, try to pull this little thing out of it that we call the self. And the self might be there, but it's never really apart from this universe self. We just think it is and act like it is. So this is where our practice really comes in, and why it's so important that we practice. You know, we can understand the teachings kind of intellectually and talk about them like we're doing right now. And it's a lot of fun to do that. But really, we have to embody the teachings. It's not enough to just understand them. And in our practice, we do this through sitting or zazen, shikantaza, just sitting. We're not really looking to gain anything. We're looking, but we're not looking to gain anything. We're just sitting down taking our posture and putting our full effort, full life force into just aiming at this line we've talked about, ZZ prime. I brought that too, just so we can, <laughs> so we can share it for those of you who weren't been reading. So there's this line we call ZZ prime when we're sitting. 
we aim for. We never really know if we hit it. In fact, if we think we hit it, we're already off the mark. <laughs> but we put our whole effort into aiming for it. As I think as Uchiyama Roshi described, getting to that quick of life. Before we start to discriminate in our mind, you, me, this, that, conceptualize things, to just come get back in touch with that universe self that's always there, just waiting for us. And it's the very act of this, you know, in that line, there's those people kind of drifting off in thought or dozing. And the heart of the sitting is waking up, re-engaging re with your life. That those vertical arrows pointing back down to that line that we never know if we hit, but just always just doing that over and over. And so in doing that, we're taking that small self and we're settling, we're trying, we're settling on the universe self that we're intimately connected to and depend on. And while we don't sit to gain anything, over the past year of practice, I have noticed changes in my life um, that have, I imagine have come about because of this sitting. And one that I would like to kind of talk about that was particularly relevant for me is moving the understanding of these things to beyond intellectual. I'm a very intellectual person. I spent oh God, 20 years of my life in school learning and always searching you know, for more and more information and really just trying to understand things, and intellectualize them as much as possible. And it wasn't until Buddhist practice where you try and go beyond intellectual, try and get beyond that intellectual understanding of these things. That this understanding of all these facts of astronomy and stuff kind of started to move from up here to down here. And so from this kind of place of emptiness, this understanding of connection, deep connection with one another, I think it's natural that gratitude comes up. I mean, look at all the causes and conditions that have come together for us to be here. It's mind boggling to even try and enumerate them. And it's, and so there's just this, not a, not a you know, really loud sense of gratitude, but just kind of a quiet gratitude that you just kind of carry around with you. I think there's maybe Mike, I think you've related a old kind of telling about how rare it is to be a human being, which is, you know, for a blind sea turtle to come up from the ocean once every hundred years and stick its head through a golden yoke. I would contend that doesn't even begin to cover it of how incredible it is and that we are here. And what of a, a precious gift it is to be here today. And so from this kind of place of this kind of internal, this kind of gratitude and idea of emptiness and compassion kind of just comes up with it. It's to kind of be grateful for things that we have rather than taking things for granted. I love just take things for granted. And it's not really until these things that we take for granted disappear from our lives that we really appreciate them. We just, you know, just, oh yeah, that'll always be there. I don't have to worry about it. But then when it's not, it's just, 
So the it's just very it can be stressful. Um, and so the the idea of kind of cultivating this gratitude is not at all to minimize people's suffering. I think sometimes people say, you know, just be grateful for what you have. You know, wag that finger. Be grateful. It's not at all in that sense. You can be grateful for what you have, but it's it's then to take that gratitude and then when you act to alleviate suffering, yours, others, and you kind of have it from this internal shift from a place of gratitude and compassion, that's how you can really act skillfully. And this is how we work to transform this mud around us into a lotus. Recently, in book study, we've been talking about and reading about living by vow, which as Uchiyama Roshi describes it, and he's quoting, he's uh, referring to some teachings from Dogen, is that living by vow in a Buddhist sense is acting in accordance with all beings in the earth, with this universe self. And so I've been, I have Jukai coming up, this has naturally been on my mind. <laughs> Taking these vows and everything, and holy cow, how do I, how do I, how do I live my life to you know, honor these vows and really give them my all? And I think we can kind of go back to that ZZ prime line as kind of a reference for the Bodhisattva vows, for instance. I'm gonna call it the VV prime line. And that VV prime line is our bodhisattva vows that I think naturally kind of come up with this universe self. That's beings are numberless, I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. That's that V, V prime line. But as Meta was talking about last week, the word right, it's not etched in stone as much as it would be helpful that it were. It's this, everyone might have a slightly different idea of what that VV prime line is and depending on the causes and conditions around you, it'll constantly be changing. So kind of like that ZZ prime line, we aim for it, but we don't necessarily know if we've hit it. And I think, I suspect that knowing that we hit the line isn't necessarily the point. So we have this line, EV prime. And then just like the ZZ prime line, take a posture. Uh, in Tension, Reb Anderson's book about the precepts, he calls this being upright. And, and to use Mato's words from last week, acting in accordance with the Dharma to the best of our understanding and for the, as we understand the situation. So we have that line and we have kind of the posture we take and we put our whole effort into doing it, really aiming for that line. And inevitably, because we're human, we are going to miss it. And I think just like in Zazen, even though we don't, can't ever really know if we hit the line, we can know when we missed it. <laughs> I think that's a little easier to, to suss out 
or just, you know, oh, I was really dozing off there. Or, you know, I was really, I started making plans for the rest of the day and what I'm going to be doing. I think the same way with these vows, when we aim at the line and we miss it, ooh, you know, there's something, something inside is just kind of like, that didn't, mm, that didn't feel quite right. We might try to rationalize our behavior to ourselves, but inside there's kind of a little compass. It's just like, mm, that, that maybe that wasn't quite so skillful of, of a thing. And then just like that ZZ prime line, those arrows pointing back to this VV prime line, waking back up, re reinvigorating, coming back at that line, and trying to, you know, just take another stab at it. So the, you know, we're gonna miss it all the time. <laughs> World's complicated, life's messy. There's no, I wish there were easy answers. That would be really nice, just set in stone. Don't do this, don't do this. But I think just like in Zazen, we just keep coming back and trying and trying. And that once that Dharma wheel, the eightfold path starts spinning, we'll just turn it endlessly. That, that line will just keep going and we just keep trying. And there are times when it's especially difficult to stay on this line or, or keep the posture and keep aiming for this line. And during those times, we have our three refuges that we can come back to. Buddha, which is both Shakyamuni Buddha and Buddha in each of us, that awakened, fully realized human being present in all of us. It's compassionate and it's connected to all things in this universe self. The Dharma teachings, kind of things nudge us a little bit in the right direction those in the bowling alley those little bumper wings <laughs> kind of keep the bowling ball from going off into the gutter just the that finger kind of pointing over to the moon and last but not, certainly not least sangha coming together on a sunday sitting together talking about the teachings sharing our problems our life experiences asking questions and supporting one another. These really are the three treasures. So I'd like to close my talk with a quote from Eckhart Tolle. Ultimately, you are not a person, but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. Thank you. Please. Please return your cushions to their places and tidy up your spot before we go outdoors. When you're standing and waiting, this is called standing meditation. And in standing and walking meditation, we hold our mudra in shashu. So as we wait for the next activity, we are in standing meditation. So we will, when I sound the bell, 
Uh, the doshi will leave the zendo, making a bow. I will follow, and then we will leave one at a time, bowing at the entrance in Gosho, and suit up for, for walking meditation outdoors, uh, and we'll meet in the garden. Thank you.